Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best The American Technion Society World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Many people name their kids after their parents or grandparents. In our family, too, we have this generational recycling of names going on. Israel, Shlomo, and Moshe for the boys. Mania, Tzipora, and Zina for the girls. Now, in our case, like in most Jewish Ashkenazi families, the naming always happens after the original name holder is already dead. But in high school, I had this friend, Itamar Levi, who had, if I remember correctly, eight or nine first cousins, all named David Levi after their beloved and very much alive grandpa, David Levy. And I remember I used to think about that grandpa, sitting around with all his namesake grandkids, and I'd wonder what that naming tribute meant to him. What it made him feel. I mean, obviously it comes from a place of respect and honor, but it's such a large gesture that it's hard to know how to react to it. Sort of like when you get a really, really expensive birthday gift. When we began thinking about this episode, we came across a lot of stories about families that have a different kind of grand gesture going on. It might even be one you've heard of. It's a bond not of names, but of ink. That's our first story. And our second one, well, it looks at a moment in Israel's history, a moment which has become so iconic and frozen in time, the Eichmann trial and goes behind the scenes to discover what it was like to be there, to actually interact on a daily basis with the world's most notorious Nazi. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel's Story. Israel's Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our episode today, marking Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day, of numbers and names. Okay, Act 1, B1367. Walking into Ahuva and Yeshayao Folman's flat 
on the 11th floor of a white, modern-looking apartment building in Rehovot is like stepping into another era. When I got there, together with their son Ron, an ex-fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force, the mom, Ahuva, immediately guided us to the dining table. Before I could say that I had already eaten, she placed a bowl of chicken soup with matzah balls in front of each of us. That was soon followed with a plateful of kasha, fish, tzimis, and boiled squash. For dessert, and mind you, this all happened within the span of about 10 minutes, we each got a small serving of applesauce. So classic. Only some fruit compote was missing to make it the quintessential Polish mama experience. After we finished, we rolled into the living room and started chatting. It was well after 2 p.m., but 82-year-old Yeshayahu said it was okay that he'd postpone his schlafstunde, his afternoon rest, till a bit later. When you look at Ron and his dad, you immediately notice they look a lot alike. The same wide-bridged nose, the same bluish-gray eyes, same high forehead. And then, there's this other thing they have in common. So the number I have on my hand is B1367. And I have the same number, B1367. The two men roll up their sleeves and show me their left forearms. Ishayao's looks like that of an old man, fragile, a bit saggy, with paper-thin skin through which you can see many blue veins. Ron is 53. His arm is stronger and covered with dark hair. Ishayao's tattoo is faded. Ron's, on the other hand, is sharp. But other than that, and a small difference we'll get back to later, they're completely identical. The circumstances in which they got them, of course, couldn't have been more different. I remember vaguely getting my tattoo. We stood in a queue. I remember two small tables and two people behind their tables doing tattoos to people and at the same time also making notes on small cards. This was in Birkenau. I was then uh, ten and a half years old. Birkenau, as you know, uh, was part of the Auschwitz complex. Ron, can you describe getting your tattoo? Well, I was in my 30s, somewhere in the middle of Tel Aviv. I don't remember exactly where. I just uh, sat down in front of a tattoo artist who was shocked by the request. He's used to making birds and uh, flowers and animals, and suddenly he's asked to make a number. And it's not a telephone number of some nice girl. And, uh, uh, And he did it. Ron got his tattoo in the year 2000, right after handing in his physics PhD. It was almost exactly 56 years after his father had gotten his. Did getting the tattoo uh, hurt you? No, no, it did not hurt. No, um, I don't think this bothered me at all. There were other things (laughs) that bothered me more, like uh, what to put in my mouth, I I guess. Yeshayahu survived the Holocaust. That's a whole other story. He ended up in Israel, in the Ben Shemin Youth Village. He began attending night school. This was the first time when I went to school, at the age of 13. And that was also where he met a girl, who had originally come aboard the Exodus. Well, I'm uh, Ahuva, Luba, uh, Folman Gordon. <laughs> and uh, was born in the... 1934 in Minsk, in uh, White Russia. We hardly uh, got away from the Nazis. I met Yeshai in uh, evening school of uh, working youth. We worked during the day, we studied during the night. The two teenagers fell in love. They got married, moved to Rehovot, had three kids. Ron is the middle child. They've been together for more than six decades, but still look at each other as if they're on their first date. And all those years, Yeshayahu, who ultimately became a biology professor at the Hebrew University and the chief scientist of Israel's Ministry of Agriculture, never tried to hide his past or his number. I don't remember any occasion that I was ashamed of the number or that I was trying to hide the number. Or anything like it. Nothing of the sort. Nothing. We try to be normal parents, and the children should have a normal childhood and everything. 
but uh, of course in the background they always felt and they knew what their father went through so it's always in the background we behave absolutely normally in everyday activities in everyday expression of feelings we don't remember or talk about or remind ourselves of the Shoah. This is the main success, that you are able, after all this happened, to live a normal life. But like in many families, despite the attempt to move on and live a normal life, there was an underlying sadness that the kids were all aware of. As a child, I remember no signs of pain from my father. And uh, the only signs I could ever uh, see was uh, almost uh, a hidden, a secretive teardrop coming out of his eye without any words being spoken uh, when he was watching uh, some movie about uh, the Holocaust. So that was very rare, but that was the only sign I remember for many, many years to what was really going on inside him. And I think he himself was even living uh, until uh, quite a late age uh, in denial. It took Yeshayahu a long time to even acknowledge that the war had left its mark on him. Until the age of 35, I was absolutely sure that the Shoah did not affect me at all. He was just rejecting the thought that it is in any way has affected him. But one day I saw a, a photo and I decided, good God, this guy has depression, myself, I mean. <laughs> and this must come from the Shoah. None of the Folmans remember the first time Ron asked about his dad's tattoo. But they all remember the day he told them he wanted to get one of his own. was, uh, I could say, uh, a very personal decision, not as some uh, demonstration or as some message to the world that uh, I'm strong and I'm here and I survived, um, but a very personal message to my father. At that time, my father was very ill. He was in a hospital. I had the feeling that uh, we will soon say uh, goodbye. And I felt that I have to convey some kind of message of, of love, of solidarity, of understanding uh, to him. And I felt that words are just not enough. And so at that moment I decided that I would like to make this tattoo. Yeshayahu and Ahuva couldn't really understand Ron's gesture. We expressed our uh, total objection to it. We don't want that uh, his daughters, the next generation, will feel the burden of the Shoah. I objected to it totally as well. I felt that this is too much of a sacrifice on the part of Ron towards myself. But Ron was determined. Uh, I decided to do it anyway. I'm sometimes a very stubborn person. <laughs> But we also are getting along with it. We had to, to accept it. He's a grown person, and that's what he decided, so we had no choice. He knew exactly what he wanted. I wanted it to be uh, very accurate in terms of color and position on the hand and the exact numbers and letters. And since nothing could be a better stencil than the original, Ron, Ahuva, and Yeshayahu found themselves stepping into a dingy tattoo parlor in the middle of Tel Aviv. Ahuva, a dentist, was worried about the sterilization of the equipment, so she went inside with Ron. After showing the tattoo artist his arm, Yeshayahu waited outside. It must have been surreal for him. Here he was, in the middle of a Jewish city in a Jewish state, waiting as his son, a fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force, got the same tattoo that had been forced upon him more than half a century earlier in Birkenau. When it was all done and the newly tattooed Ron came out, they all noticed the tattoo artist had messed up. Nothing major, but just a little bit. He didn't do it perfectly, unfortunately. Uh, the letters and the numbers are correct, and the position and the color are perfect, but the number three that my father has is completely circular, 
And the number three uh, that I got, uh, the top of the number three is flat. I asked Ron why that mattered to him. He said he's a scientist and that accuracy has always been a big part of his life. This tattoo, he continued after a short pause, needed to be accurate too. Because it represented a memory. A memory of what went on back then. And memories, Ron thinks, memories should be precise. Sixteen years have passed since that day. Ron has made his peace with the straight top of his number three. Like his dad, Ron also became a professor at Ben-Gurion University in the Negev. He got married, divorced, remarried. He has four daughters. So, Ron, if your daughter came to you and said, I want to also have the same tattoo, what would you say? Well, uh... She did indeed come uh, when she was uh, 16. She's now 18 and said that she's going to make uh, this tattoo in her hand. And I gave her straight away the exact same response my parents gave me. And that is an absolute no. But she's a a free, independent individual. Uh, What she does is uh, up to her. It's her decision. But my answer to her was very clear. Why? For the exact same reasons that my parents told me not to do it, and that is that uh, they wanted uh, their children, and I want my children, to have a happy childhood, happy life, as much as possible in this world, and not to carry on them, on their back, uh, the burdens of pain of previous generations. So she didn't do it yet. No, she didn't do it yet. Before I left Ahuva and Yeshayahu to their afternoon naps and returned to a life in which you don't get a small serving of applesauce at the end of the meal, I wanted to know what they all felt, now, about this larger-than-life homage. Uh, Actually, after I did the tattoo, and for many years since then, many people come to me or write to me from many uh, different places. And uh, some of them... Uh, say that it's the most horrible thing that I did and that I'm letting the Nazis win all over again. And some of them say exactly the opposite. Uh, They say that uh, here I am, the next generation of the Jewish people. I'm strong. I'm educated. I have my own country. And I'm free to choose whether or not I put this number on my hand. Of course, Ron wanted to do this tattoo uh, as a great, great homage to his father to show his love and devotion and uh, all that goes with it. That's wonderful. That's more than uh, uh, you could expect from a loving son. But um, I think something from inside also wanted to declare Am Israel Chai. I think so. He doesn't think so, but I think he felt it. I don't consider it to be a victory over the Nazis or victory by the Nazis. At this point, Ishayao nodded his head and put his hand on his son's arm, just above the number. I don't see it a victory. I don't see it a defeat. <laughs> I see it a message from Ron to myself. And uh, I feel a little bit awkward even now (laughs) that he did it. (laughs) But what can I do? Here I am, he did it, and that's it. You have to accept the facts of life. This is one of them. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Our second story today takes us back in time to a very different Israel. One in which the Holocaust was still a shameful topic that wasn't really discussed much. European Jews, many Israelis felt, had gone to the camps like lamb to the slaughter, without resisting, without a fight. That began to change as a result of one event. One event which still, in some very real way, shapes Israel today. On May 23, 1960, just as most of the citizens of Israel were waking up from their afternoon naps, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion made a dramatic announcement in the Knesset. A while back, he told the nation, the Israeli security services discovered one of the greatest Nazi war criminals alive, Adolf Eichmann. Along with other Nazi leaders, Eichmann was responsible for what they called the final solution for the Jewish problem, the extermination of six million European Jews. Ben-Gurion then paused for a second and delivered the bombshell. Adolf Eichmann, he said with excitement, is now in custody in Israel and will soon stand trial in Jerusalem. Now, we all know about the Eichmann trial. You can probably even conjure up the famous image of a balding, thin, middle-aged man responsible for the deaths of millions of Jews sitting inside a glass booth in the Jerusalem courtroom. Many of us have learned about the trial in school or watched documentaries about it on Holocaust Remembrance Days, or read Hannah Arendt's report on the banality of evil, or a zillion other accounts of the saga. And just in case none of this sounds familiar, the Israeli National Archives have recently uploaded videos of the entire trial to YouTube. Eichmann has become a symbol, a symbol of evil. But for today's show, we decided to seek out members of a dwindling group of Israelis who remember Eichmann not as a symbol, but rather as a man, a man with a name. Act 2, Herr Eichmann. Shine Bal and Katie Pulverman met up with people for whom the encounter with the Nazi officer wasn't just a moment of national catharsis. It was an intimate experience. Maybe even too intimate. I was 27 at the time, and I was serving in the border police. That's Amram Lusky. Today, he's an 82-year-old retired grandpa of five who likes to pickle vegetables. But in 1960, he was a young cop, chosen for a very sensitive task. One day, I was summoned to the police national headquarters, and I was interviewed by Amos Ben-Gurion, the prime minister's son. He was actually the one who chose me. I remember Amos just said, you will be a part of this team. Amram had no idea what team he was joining. All he knew was what he had been told. As of today, you belong to a special unit which doesn't have a name. Tomorrow morning, you report for duty and you'll tell your wives that you don't know when you'll be back home. Amram agreed. Then, in one night, we made an entire prison for one prisoner. The next day, when he heard who it was he would be guarding, Amram wasn't too impressed. He had emigrated from Morocco at a young age and knew very little about the Holocaust. You see, I came from a community that didn't suffer at the hands of the Nazis. Everything we knew came from the radio or from what we heard from the rabbi in synagogue. And don't forget, I was only a kid during the war. So when they told me, this is the Nazi criminal Adolf Eichmann, I didn't even know who Adolf Eichmann was. I remember the first time I saw him as if it were yesterday. I saw this pale, scrawny guy. He was about my father's age and was wearing these military-issued clothes the IDF had given him. Another one of the guards, Shalom Nagar, who was born in Yemen, 
also couldn't really imagine his mild and polite prisoner as a heartless monster. He had this presence. I thought, what a righteous man. When I would take him to the restroom, I'd chain his legs. When I would take them off, he'd say, thank you, in Spanish, gracias. You didn't feel that he was cruel. He was calm. He was sitting in his corner, he had a desk, the chair, and all day long he would write, either write or read. He had a bed next to him, and if he was tired, he would go to bed and sleep. That's it. These two men, the German SS lieutenant colonel and the Yemenite Jewish prison guard, didn't really have a common language. I couldn't teach him Yemeni Arabic, and he wasn't successful in teaching me German, so he communicated with me through hand gestures. As a result, there was little communication between Eichmann and his guards. It was absolutely forbidden to talk to him. Here and there, we would sneak in a few words. But mainly, we just kept quiet. All of this was, of course, by design. Guys like Amram and Shalom were selected to guard Eichmann precisely because they had no personal connection to the Holocaust. They wouldn't try to engage the prisoner in conversation or, and this was a real concern at the time, try to hurt him. In fact, Eichmann was such a high-profile prisoner, and the anxiety surrounding his well-being so great that even the guards were closely monitored. I mean, they didn't want to take any chances. Just imagine what would have happened if in some moment of madness a guard would have killed Eichmann. So we guarded him without a rifle, without any blunt instrument that could endanger him. They'd search us before we went into the cell, make us to take off our belts, just like him, really. It didn't take long for Amram and Shalom to learn all about the man they were charged with guarding. Reports about Eichmann appeared daily, in print, on the radio. The more we learned about him, the more we learned about what he had done and about how bad he was, we began hating him. I personally hated his guts. But in the cell, I always smiled at him. When he wasn't in his cell, Eichmann was being interrogated, endlessly. During the first nine months of his imprisonment in Israel, he was cross-examined by the members of the 06 Bureau, a special police unit set up for the purpose of collecting all the information needed for Eichmann's trial. One of the 14 06 investigators was Michael Goldman Gilad. He'd actually left the police two years earlier and was just getting used to civilian life when he heard Ben-Gurion's announcement on the radio. When Ben-Gurion told in the Knesset that Eichmann is here, that we brought him from Argentine, I sent a letter to the chief inspector of the police that I am ready to be in the special unit which will investigate Adolf Eichmann. And he told me that it's impossible to be only for a time for investigation in this unit I have to return to the police. So I return to the police. Michael can't forget the first time he saw the man responsible for sending his parents, sister, and brother to their deaths. I remember exactly. When I saw him sitting in front of me for the first time, when he opened his mouth, I had the feeling that I see the gates of the crematorium open. It was my first feeling. Avner Les, a Berlin native, served as Eichmann's chief interrogator. This is him in a recording from those interrogation sessions. Les clocked more than 275 hours with Eichmann, going over questions that the whole 06 team had prepared. They taped all the sessions and took meticulous notes. For Les, this work was personal. 
Most of his family had been killed in the Holocaust. That's why he was reluctant at first to take on the task of interrogating Eichmann. He didn't really want to revisit the horrors of the past. And in the end, my mother asked him to do this work because her parents were killed in the Holocaust. That's Alone Les, Abner's son, who now lives in Switzerland. He told us over the phone about his father, who died in 1987. He was a very relaxed man, quiet and polite. He had to get everything he could out of Eichmann. Most of the Zero Six team had close ties to the Holocaust. Miki Reich, for example, was added mainly because he'd been in the camps. I did not know anything about Eichmann. I knew nothing. When you're in a concentration camp, you have no radio, no newspaper, and you don't care what is happening. You have one worry, survive another day. They all say Eichmann was smart and manipulative. He realized that most of his interrogators were survivors. In summer, because we, we, were, we were not in uniform, and he saw from time to time my number on, on my arm. And um, of course he didn't ask or didn't say something, not, nothing. And some of my colleagues in this unit, they were also ex-Auschwitz prisoners with number. But I was sure that he, in his mind, how I had not the possibility to kill him before. Eichmann famously claimed that he was a mere cog in the Nazi machine, just a bureaucrat following orders, a paper pusher. Eichmann said during one of his conversations with Les, Look, I know the end of me. I only want you to trust me. To me, Hitler was a legislator. If he put out a law that ordered the execution of every person over the age of 50, I, with my own hands, would have killed my parents. This was his line. I follow orders and know with a personal initiative. Michael didn't buy this line of defense. We knew that he is a liar. The extensive evidence they gathered painted a wholly different picture. But also in the uh, Nuremberg trial, there were some SS officers that gave testimony against him. And they told that he was an initiator. He, he hated Jews fanatically. He knew that uh, he did his job with gusto. Throughout the questioning, Les played the role of the good cop. He insisted that no one raise their voice at Eichmann and that everyone treat him with respect. Eichmann thought my father was a polite Jew, stupid. He thought he could tell him anything and he wouldn't know, wouldn't understand. But my dad just manipulated him that way, really got him to say everything. Playing along with this calm, civilized charade, Eichmann would call Michael Herr Hauptmann. German for Mr. Captain, referring to his military rank. For me it was difficult because I had to be very strictly and official, not to ask him personal questions, etc., and only to see him as an object for what we have to do. Les's orders caused some tension within the Zero Six team. He was the permanent investigator. He was a really gentleman. I was not such a gentleman with Eichmann. Michael got particularly incensed when he heard Les call Eichmann Herr Eichmann. Herr Eichmann, this is Sir Eichmann. Michael leapt out of his seat. It's the highest calling. They called us dogs, fleas, lice, and other such names. And you sit in front of him, and you're questioning him, and you tell him, Herr? So after I made a scene, an order was issued by the head of the unit to stop calling him Herr. At the end of the investigation, in April of 1961, everything was set for the start of Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem's district court. He was accused of 15 different charges, including crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes against the Jewish people. 
One of the three presiding judges, Moshe Landoy, read the indictment in front of a packed courtroom. Outside, the entire country was glued to the radio. Adolf Eichmann. He ordered Eichmann to stand up. Are you Adolf? He asked. Son of Adolf Karl Eichmann? Yes, Eichmann answered. Standing up in his famous bulletproof glass booth, with Israeli guards at his side, Eichmann listened, almost expressionless, to a simultaneous translation of the charges. Did you understand the charges? Yes. When Landoy asked him to enter a plea, Eichmann replied, In the spirit of the accusation, not guilty. The judges rejected Eichmann's defense. 56 court days and 112 witnesses later, on December 15, 1961, Landoy handed down an unprecedented sentence. In a country that had never executed a soul, Eichmann was going to be the first. The story that had a grim preface in the horror of Nazi concentration camps comes to an equally grim end in Israel, as Adolf Achmann is sentenced for his crimes against humanity. In his bulletproof booth, Eichmann sits stoically as the charges are summed up. The judges then call on the defendant to stand as they pass their sentence. The end of a trail of blood and horror, the end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. Some people, both in Israel and abroad, opposed Eichmann's death sentence. One of them was Levi Eshkol, who just a year later became Israel's prime minister. He thought it would be better if Eichmann wandered the world bearing the mark of Cain. The Jewish philosopher Martin Buber added his signature to a letter from Israeli intellectuals to President Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, expressing their concern over Israel's moral character and international image should Eichmann's execution go through. But they were in the minority. Most Israelis heavily favored the hanging, and President Ben-Zvi rejected the idea of a pardon. May 31, 1962, was set as the execution date. Here again is Shalom Nagar, the Yemenite guard. After the verdict was given, the commander came to me and asked, If I need you, will you be ready to push the button? I told him, No, not to take me. I said, Why don't you want to do it? Or, We have Ashkenazi brothers whose family suffered. Let them. On May 31st, Shalom was already on his way home after a long shift. A car pulled up next to him. It was his commander. We're one person short, he said. You need to come. Shalom got in the car and they drove to the Ramla prison where Eichmann was held. Michael Goldman Gilad, who was appointed to be the police representative at the hanging, was waiting for them there. It was a Thursday night. We were together, ten men inside. We stand near to him, about one, one and a half meter. There were four journalists. One of them was a German journalist, a priest. He was together with him also before because he wanted him to confess. And the priest told us after what happened. Eichmann told him, I have no time for stupidity. Nothing. Not one word. And then the priest who stand near to me told him so quietly, Say Jesus, say Jesus. And no answer. And then he told, I believe in God and I died believing in God. In this moment, I told to myself, which is his God? I came with a commander. We wrapped the rope around his, his neck. He began to speak. What I remember, long live Germany, long live Argentine, long live Austria. I only did my orders and blah, 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 
By the rules, his face should be covered. But he didn't want us to do it. We told him, okay, it's up to you if you don't want it, but it would be a shame. We wrapped the rope, and there was a table. The table had a button. The police officer said one word, Pe'al, in Hebrew, do it. I pushed on the button. This opened the two shutters he was standing on, and he fell. Within a few minutes, Eichmann was pronounced dead. But there was no sigh of relief in the room, just a quiet sense of emptiness. I didn't feel nothing. No, no revenge. It, it don't exist revenge about was what they did to us. I was sure that he have to receive his punishment about what he did, not more. I'm sure that only God can take revenge. It is impossible to hang him six million times. Shalom was deeply disturbed. I saw his face, his white face. His eyes were opened wide from suffocation. I thought his eyes would swallow me at that moment. And his tongue dropped down to his stomach. I just saw him and I was scared. I ran away from the guys who were there. The commander told me, Nagar, come here. I told him, leave me alone, sir. I don't feel well. He told me, come and finish your work. But when he thinks about it today, Shalom is grateful to his commander for forcing him to come back. The Torah says, For I will completely erase all memory of Amalek from the face of the earth. I got my own living Amalek. The group carried Eichmann's body to a special furnace built by a Holocaust survivor whose family had been burnt in the crematoriums. Eichmann's ashes were placed in a milk jug. A milk jug of two liter. I was shocked to see how little ashes is from a man, together with his clothes. Then we went to Jaffa, to the port of Jaffa, with the jug in a police boat. And after six miles of Jaffa, the chief of all prisons in Israel, together with me, we opened the jug and we put the ashes on the, on the sea. In a way, this marked the end of the saga, which forever changed the way Israelis talked about the Holocaust. But for that small group of people who interacted with the Nazi commander, it never really ended. Miki Reish, the 06 interrogator who had survived the camps, looks back with great satisfaction. I think it was the most difficult job in my life, and I thank God for choosing me. Shalom Nagar, on the other hand, was initially scarred by the experience. Truth be told, I remained fearful for a few months. I don't know what happened to me. I was in the paratroopers and everything, but I was afraid of him. He was in my dreams. After a few months, maybe a year, this whole mess left me. That was it. Avner Les, the chief interrogator, left Israel in 1968. He settled down in Switzerland and continued writing about Eichmann until his death in 1987. As he held the empty jug and looked out at the sea on his way back into Israel's territorial waters, Michael Goldman Gilad's thoughts wandered back to the day the war ended. I was in the military hospital when it was the 8th of May, when the war was end, and they came to hospital crying and singing. They came to each one who was a small glass of vodka. I remember that one told me, you, you know we will go at home to our parents, to our family. And I told him that I have no home, 
no parents, nobody. We were three children at home. A, a brother, he was older than me, and a sister, she was 10 when they killed her. Only two cousins, they survived. Of course, I was very happy that the war was end, but I, I was not happy because I knew that I was alone. I remember that in the same moment when we put the ashes on the sea, I said a sentence of the prophetess of Deborah, Ko yavdu kol oivecha Israel. So will die all your enemies, O Lord. It came on the moment. I was very uh, relieved. I was very relieved. I saw the end of one of them. So it was the sunshine. We saw the fisher. They came back from the fishing. We saw children. They went to the school. It was a new day. A calm day. Katie Pulverman is a production intern on our show. That piece was produced together with Shain Bal. A special thanks to our team of dubbers, Yuval Or, Roy Barzilai, Shlomo Meital, and Hanoch Lipperman. And that's our episode. Now, before we go, we wanted to thank our friends at Reveal for supporting our show. Each episode of the Reveal podcast takes us into a hidden world or exposes a problem that most people know nothing about. The reporters spend weeks, sometimes months, even years, getting to the bottom of the story. Along the way, they come across the most intriguing characters. Sometimes they're good guys, sometimes they're bad. But by the end, they've revealed what exactly is going on. So check it out. You can find Reveal on your local public radio stations or on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you download your podcasts. That's also where you can catch all of our episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And I'm reminding you one more time to go to our site, israelstory.org, and donate to our ongoing listener drive. We are blown away by the generosity of our listeners and thank each and every one of you. You make the show possible. And, speaking of which, how could we possibly end an episode without my usual spiel about looking for a sponsor? Yep, that's still happening. So, to all you potential sponsors out there, all I can say is we've got a phenomenal audience. People just like you, who are all interested in and engaged with Israel. So, if you want to sponsor our show and reach what has become a lot, a lot of people... Email us at sponsor at prx.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Israel Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Shoshi Shmulovitz, and Rachel Fisher. Amir Faktor, Itai Hyman, and Katie Pulverman are incredible production interns. The newest addition to our team is Adam Rose, our new music intern, whose beautiful original music you heard throughout the first story. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, yalla bye. <laughs> Thank you.
והכפר הדין מתפתל, מאפייה מתוך הגדות. אמרת לי לוותר על הבשר, זה לא מתאים פה לאכול חיות מתות. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.